We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and I always love to hear what you think in terms of amazing guests to have on the show. You can let me know on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and I respond to all messages there personally. But to the show today, and we have a special episode. Why? Well, we always talk about metrics and targets and KPIs, but as we know, there's real people building these businesses and behind these numbers. And today we touched on some more personal elements of scaling SaaS companies. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome Justin Welsh, former SVP of sales at Patient Pop, the startup that offers the first all-in-one practice growth platform that's HIPAA compliant and is proven to grow your practice. During his five years at Patient Pop, Justin grew sales from zero to $56 million alongside the full build-out of the sales team. Before Patient Pop, Justin was one of the first 10 employees at ZocDoc, where he spent four years in different roles, including Director of Strategic Sales. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Luke Kirvin, founder at Patient Pop, for the fantastic intro to Justin today. Mojito's on me for that, and I really do appreciate it. But before we dive into the show today, ever feel like you really can't connect with your prospects or have an organized workflow to get deals closed? Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform, supports sales reps and their managers by making it simple to humanize and personalize communication at scale, automating the soul-sucking manual work and dramatically increasing the productivity and efficiency of all revenue-generating teams. You can check them out at outreach.io forward slash SASTA to chat with them and receive a free copy of their new book, Sales Engagement, How the World's Fastest Growing Companies Are Modernizing Sales Through Humanization at Scale. And speaking of connecting with your customers there, the question is, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them today and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And finally, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Eric Road, Strategic Advisor at Atplos, the software to help you grow your non-profit or church, attract great donors, automate everything, and get instant insights, all while growing your donations and your impact. Hi, Harry. Treat everything as an experiment, whether it's developing new acquisition channels or in-house systems. If the first iteration doesn't work, try again. If it does, treat it as a new standard to improve upon. Sometimes building things can feel like getting married. It's really better to think of it as just dating when you're a startup. Thanks so much for that, Eric. And I couldn't agree with you more. Iterating is one of the keys to success. And you can also find out more about success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of my dulcet British accent. And so now I'm very excited to hand over to Justin Welsh, former SVP at Patient Pop. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Justin, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things. And so thank you so much for joining me today. Harry, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Not at all. As you can tell, I'm very excited for this one. But I do want to kick off today with a little bit about you. So how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and then come to be SVP of sales at Patient Pop until recently? Yeah. You know, I graduated school in 2003 and my dad had been in sales for 41 years. And so when I looked at our nice house and two cars, I thought, you know, sales was 
was the role for me. And I jumped in in 2003. And to be very honest, for like the first six years of my career, I sort of had this very meandering career where I moved from small town to small town. I was in pharmaceutical sales. I, I went into med device sales, but I really like candidly wasn't very good. I was average to below average. I was pretty immature. I didn't take it very seriously. And I sort of got my break in 2009. I had my resume on Monster and I got a call from Cyrus Masumi, who was the founder and CEO over at ZocDoc in New York. And I was living in Allentown, PA. And he said, hey, we have an open sales role. ZocDoc was just nine people deep. And I took the bus from Allentown to New York and interviewed for the role. And I landed at ZocDoc as the second sales hire and the 10th employee. And that's really how I broke into SaaS. I spent five years there at ZocDoc in multiple roles from individual contributor. I moved up really rapidly into local management and then regional management, ended up managing five states. And then my last year there, spent time reporting directly to Cyrus, working on some special projects. And after my tenure there, which was about, again, five years, that's where Luke and Travis, the co-founders of PatientPop, began reaching out to me about what they were doing there. They needed a VP of sales. They had one person. And my name came up frequently when they were interviewing folks at ZocDoc. And in January of 2015, I accepted the role of VP of sales there of one person. And I went there five years, uh, grew the team from one to 140 people, and went from zero to just south of 60 million in recurring revenue when I left a couple of weeks ago. I mean, what an incredible journey. I do want to go slightly off schedule already though and just unpack a couple of elements because it's too interesting. You said about your father there being in sales for 41 years. Incredible career in history. Did you have any major learnings from seeing your father in that sales role from an early age? And were there any big takeaways from him that you've learned along the way? Totally. I think when people think about salespeople, there's this stigma around salespeople of slick or dishonest or whatever. I think there's something to be said like salespeople are trusted around the same level as politicians. And my dad, he always earned his living and spent his time at his company being extremely honest, transparent, and candid. And I think if you were to ask people around me about how I am in my daily role, honesty, transparency, being very candid are traits that he really passed down to me. And I think that's the opposite of of what some people think of when they think of sales or sales leadership. So I was really happy to get that from him. That stuck with me my entire career so far. No, I think it absolutely is. And what a learning to have. I guess my next question would be, just in terms of, you mentioned that your career is maybe slightly meandering before the entrance with ZocDoc. What yep. changed? Because that's the meandering to then becoming a regional leader and then actual kind yeah. of sales. What changed to make that mediocre to sub-mediocre to then star performer in the team? Great question. So I think it was an intersection of really three or four things that all happened at once. I think the first one was a lucky one, which was I was just ready to be mature. I was 28 years old. I matured a little bit later than some other folks and was ready to take my career seriously. At the same time as that, I met this incredibly smart group of people at ZocDoc that just like blew my mind. They were so intelligent. They were so smart that that really rubbed off on me. There was the product and the service, which I just completely believed in. You know, it was the first entrance into online doctor's appointments. I thought this was an incredible software product. So that happened. And then the fourth one was I ended up moving to New York and I started feeding off that energy of the city. So it was the city, the product, the people, and just the stage in my life. I call it like the intersection of those four things that happened at once, that it was almost overnight the way that my life and my career changed. I, I love the intersections and, and totally see that. But 
I do want to dive into the show today. And I, as we said before, I'm super excited for this one because it's a topic that I'm very passionate about. And I don't think, honestly, we discuss it enough on the show. And that's the topic of burnout. So before we dive into the nitty gritty and discuss maybe process and solutions, can you talk to me a little bit about your experience with burnout and maybe how it manifested itself? Yeah, you know, it happened really slowly. And it had this sort of compound effect where I spent those five years at ZocDoc in this culture of hard work and grinding it out, which by the way, I loved, and then really transitioned directly into my first executive role at Patient Pop. And the first sort of three to four years there felt excellent. But, you know, as I started to sort of come towards the end of my career there, you know, it's bigger revenue targets, being handed additional teams and responsibilities that, you know, I was just maybe less familiar with, more work to be done cross-functionally with more people, and suddenly found myself attending way more meetings. And, and then I couldn't find the time I needed to do the necessary things to really prepare the business for the future. So that naturally meant getting up at 5 a.m. and finding time there and then finding additional time at 8 p.m. And that in turn leads to more of an unhappy personal life. And, you know, when that happens, you know, what do you do to cope with the stress and frustration of that? Maybe you have a one too many glasses of wine at night and then you wake up feeling crappy the next morning and then it just keeps going. And it's sort of, you know, very, you know, circular in motion, but it was really slow in the way that it crept up. And as I entered the last part of my career at Patient Pop, it just became really clear that I was exhausted. And so uh, I think one thing as I look back is I wish I could have seen that compounding happen in real time and done a better job of recognizing it until it, it just sort of snuck up on me. I guess my question is, having had that experience, what would you do next time maybe slightly differently along the process in terms of how you think about it and how you approach it? Yeah, I think I would be more candid with my CEO. I started talking about it maybe a little bit too late and I think I could have been a bit more proactive because the co-founders of Patient Pop were hugely supportive. And so I, I could have been more proactive. And I think I probably could have done a better job of delegating. You know, as a first-time executive, I like to have my hands and everything. And I was really proud of what we were doing. But I'm also somebody who likes to get into the details every once in a while. And I probably could have done a better job delegating and staying high level. I, it probably would have slowed the compounding growth of, of that burnout. So those are two things I, I believe would have done differently. I often like to look at where responsibility lies and taking account of that. In terms of the we're all killing it BS that we have so much of in this industry. My, my question to you is really, who do you think maybe, and blame is the wrong word, but who do you think maybe should take some level of ownership for this burnout culture? Is it kind of the VCs that put the pressure on? Is it the CEOs that put the metrics and the KPIs in place? Is it the contributors themselves actually for not realizing soon enough? Where do you think accountability may rest? Yeah, I'd love to think that there's like one person or group to blame or paint with sort of this brush across a group of folks. But I think it's really like a combination of things. And I think, sure, there's pressure from VCs to grow, but that's a good thing, right? I also think that a lot of founders are young and, and often it's their first experience or executives like myself, their first experience in executive role. So you're sort of all learning together and you're all working really, really hard together. But it's likely that a lot of the things that could make the job or the processes easier are being missed because it's people's first go around. So it's not really a blame game. It's more just not knowing how to navigate building this hyper growth company. And suddenly it just like I, I mentioned before, it sort of compounds. And I think it gets added onto by some of the stuff that you mentioned, like this BS that you see online, like I'll, I'll read quotes, like I'll sleep when I'm dead and things like that, which to me is, is silly stuff, you know, even pioneers like of this mentality. So like, take a look at someone like Gary Vee, who 
by the way, I love. But two to three years ago, his sort of talk track was all hustle and grind. And it's interesting that recently he's moved his talk track to empathy and away from this hustle grind mentality. And I think that's a good sign. So I think that means you know people are getting tired of hearing this type of stuff. I mean, what VC wants to truly invest in a founder who is quote unquote, you know, hustling 24 seven, they want someone well-rested. No, I listen, I couldn't agree more. I once said, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead to a mentor of mine. And he said, that's wonderful, Harry, you'll die so much sooner. And so I was like, oh, that's, that's very kind of you, mentor. But I, I do want to ask that in terms of management overview, you know, as you said, you kind of manage multiple people in the sales team. If you were to look back now, what to you are the clear signs that maybe now, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, a kind of indicative signals of burnout that founders and managers should look out for in their team? Yeah, I think when you see that, there's a couple different things. So for me, I guess I always consider myself as someone who likes to know what's going on. So, you know, for me, it was like pulling back. I observed this thing in myself where I started to pay a little bit less attention, to be a bit more absent, to work from home a bit more, and to miss a few company events and so on. So like that just sort of wasn't my normal style. So that, that was something that I noticed in and of myself. But another clear indicator to me of burnout is when people start getting, I guess what I'd call more chutzpah, for lack of a better word. They say and ask for things they normally wouldn't. They make demands. They back you into a corner. To me, that just shows that they're pushing their chips in and they don't really care what happens. Yeah, no, I do agree with you in terms of those kind of asks and requests. I guess if we take it to the flip side there, if that's the manager's overview of it, if you're actually the individual who's actually feeling this kind of intense pressure and burnout, what would you advise them to do? What's the right course of action once one's realized that actually this is quite a, a precarious situation? Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my whole career has really been built on honesty and transparency. So if someone were to come to me and, and ask me what I advise, I would say to speak with their boss. You know, I sat down with my co-founders and I spoke to them about this at length and we had an incredible relationship and, you know, they weren't just willing, but truly interested in helping. So ultimately, as the conversations progressed, because I was open to it, I was able to communicate effectively and leave my last business in this incredible spot and have this wonderfully amicable separation that I think a lot of people don't get. So to me, honesty and transparency is always the best path. I would recommend they start with their boss and they work on a, a solution to alleviate what's burning them out. I think you have to be open about it. I agree in terms of identifying that solution. In terms of the drivers of potential burnout, often the driver itself is just ruthless expectation on performance, both of the team and the individual that we put on ourselves and others. But I guess my question to you is when we chatted before, you said to me, culture must precede performance. What did you mean by this culture preceding performance? Yeah, I, I guess what I mean by that is you can sort of manufacture short-term performance without strong culture. You can whip people hard enough. You can threaten people's jobs. You can pace the floor. You can do a bunch of different stuff. But in order to truly maximize long-term performance, in my opinion, you have to have an incredible culture. And to be clear, like when I talk about culture, I often encourage founders and sales leaders to not confuse that for amenities. I'm not talking booze and ping pong and dogs, like none of that stuff. I'm talking about the values that you've instilled in your team and the behavior that is a result of those values. I think that has to be in place for long-term performance, whereas on the opposite, you can always manufacture that short-term performance. So that's sort of what I mean by it. No, listen, I totally agree, especially in terms of not being the amenities. I guess my question, and unfair off schedule, but as a sales manager itself, often the requirements in terms of quarterly targets and numbers that are expected to hit for the team and the individuals within the team. My question to you is, how do you think about setting targets with that culture preceding performance and wanting to hit 
hit your targets, but also not wanting to place undue stress and pressure on, I'm sure, an already pressurized entire team. How do you think about that balance when it comes to KPI and quarter goal setting? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is around expectations. So to me, what I've found over the course of my career is, yeah, you have to have the right targets. You have to have targets that are relatively attainable and a decent portion of your team is hitting those targets. But to me, it's all about expectations. It's about starting with expectations of KPIs in the interview process. It's about continuing the expectation of those KPIs through the training program. It's about getting sign-off on those upon graduation. And it's about really reinforcing those on a regular basis. To me, by doing that, you sort of take away the gray area, which to me often leads to a bad culture. When people say, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do 50 of these. I thought I was supposed to do 40. Or I I wasn't aware that I needed to sell eight units in my first three months. I thought it was five units. So I think that that's where a lot of times I see like a poor culture because there's miscommunication. So I think it's establishing your KPIs, being very consistent about how you set those expectations, and then reinforcing those on a regular cadence. To, To me, that's a good balance of culture and performance that I think you need in a, in a fast-growing startup. No, I really like that balance. I guess my, my, my next question is, you know, we both agree in terms of the importance of transparency and vulnerability. From the sales rep, ABDR level, how do you think about fostering a culture of actual real vulnerability, care, and transparency in often, as we've said before, a more kind of chest-thumping element of the industry? Yeah, I think what you have to do is you have to make it really safe. I think that the culture gets set from the top and if from the top it's a chest-thumping mentality, if it's hustle grind 24-7, if it's always be working, always be closing, you're going to build a team like that. And to me, like, yes, your team needs to work hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of hard work, but you have to create a space in your environment, in your culture, where people know that it's safe to come to you and talk to you about their mental mindset, right? Where they're at personally, where they're at mentally, where they're at with their performance. And I think you do that through being open and honest as a leader. I think you do it through creating a leadership team of transparency, vulnerability, being open, being honest, having office hours where you make people aware that there's two hours every week where they can come and sit down in your office and talk to you about what's going on without feeling the need to thump their chest or you know play a character that they think is the right character to play. So to me, it starts at the top and it makes its way through the bottom. Totally agree in terms of starting at the top. I guess my next question is in terms of from starting at the top, often it starts very well in terms of the culture building and while the team is small, it's a highly efficient and there's often good culture. As it scales, often things start to break down. So having seen multiple scaling sales cultures from the inside and outside, even as an advisor, I guess, where do you see the process in culture really start to break down? Yeah, there are really two areas where I see it break down most commonly. I think the first is when a company doesn't establish some sort of the fundamental elements of a strong culture in the beginning. So examples to me would be things like really crisp career pathing, appropriate compensation plans, providing ample opportunities for learning and development, uh, a recognition program. So a lot of that stuff may not matter when you're 50 employees deep, but go from 50 and suddenly you're at 500. And if you didn't establish this stuff really early, it can get very messy. And when it gets messy and you're playing from behind and you're trying to catch up, people get really upset. And so I, I think laying that foundation early is really important. And I think the second place that I might see it most often is when companies are going through like a hiring burst and they're putting tremendous emphasis on filling these individual contributor roles, whether it's SDRs or AEs, but they're not being mindful enough of management ratios. So like I mentioned, like 
like behavior and culture comes from your team, but it's often driven by these strong leaders. And I'm a real firm believer in tight management ratios. I like to keep one to eight. And suddenly if you're hiring really fast and you go from one to eight to one to 12 or one to 15, I've seen that cause a lot of issues in terms of culture. Can I ask, and this is a super interesting one that I haven't discussed before, in terms of the management ratios, how does it change in terms of getting worse the more the ratio expands itself? So how does one to eight change when it's actually suddenly one to 15? Yeah, great question. So culture to me, a huge part of it, one of the biggest slices is learning and development. And so I think that the place where it changes is people just get less of that. So I know when I was at ZocDoc as an individual contributor early in my career, my boss, Ryan Stam, spent a tremendous amount of time with me. And I think that was a huge part of the reason why I had such a great career there and where I, why I started to treat my career differently. And as you sort of scale your teams and you don't scale your management, you've got people floating in the wind. You've got people meandering the way that I did early in my career without being able to have that learning and development. And that spreads. You know, That's the stuff that ends up on Glassdoor. That's the stuff that people talk about if they're not getting enough of. So that's sort of why I think it's so important. The final one before the quick fire, you mentioned that kind of the management ratio itself. I guess that makes me think straight away to actual mentorship outside of the workplace. Do you think mentorship outside of the workplace and having that independent but also knowledgeable ear on your industry can help when it comes to the burnout culture, the vulnerability, the transparency? Do you think that that actually is a very valuable element or does it have to come from internal in terms of the company itself? No, I, th- I think it's great for it to come externally. I think as I look back in my career, one thing that I'm disappointed in myself for not having done was to getting an executive coach. I think that having an executive coach, somebody outside of my organization to bounce ideas off of, to work through some of the burnout, to talk through inheriting new departments or things that I uh, hadn't done before would have been extremely valuable. And you know, I spend a lot of my time today mentoring younger sales leaders and, and actually saying, here are all the mistakes that I made that you want to avoid. And I, I think that gives them a tremendous sort of leg up. So I'm a huge fan of, of external mentorship and, and motivation for sure. Thrilled to hear that. I, I think my career would be very different if I didn't have some of the mentors that I do. So uh, thrilled to hear you agree with me there. I do want to move though, Justin, into my favorite element of any episode, which is the 60 second Sasta. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready? <laughs> I am. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what do you know now about the process, which you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time at really, and you can choose, but either it was Doc or patient pop. Yeah. I would say delegating effectively is your best friend. Got it. No, I, I totally agree. It's a tough one. Uh, I struggle with it immensely. Uh, how to create a sense of urgency in a sales process. I use a methodology called PASTOR, which stands for a lot of things, but the P and the A are, are the most important. Create pain, amplify that pain, and then tie it to an opportunity cost. Love it. Anything with an opportunity cost has got my thumbs up. Uh, sales leader you most respect and admire and why? Yeah, I really enjoy what the gang over at Outreach is doing. It's Mark Casaglo leading sales and Max Altschuler leading marketing. They got a great product. They use it to maximize their own revenue, and they've created this really incredible thought leadership community. Couldn't agree more. I think Max is amazing and I loved working with him on the shows. Uh, Okay, discounting. Is it always bad? And what leads your thinking here? I don't think it's always bad. I think if you're an SMB SaaS like I've been and you don't have like a dual-sided marketplace that requires price integrity, I think that you can use it to drive some results, right? If you want to do it at the end of month or quarter or year. But I think that if I could do it over again, I probably would have chosen to stay consistent with my pricing and, and not allow discounting. I think that's something I would change. 
And then final one, if you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, what would it be and why? I would like to see diversity and inclusion continue to become more important. And I, I think the, the reason why is because the more diverse the community, the, the more we all learn. And I think that's a good thing. I couldn't agree with you more there. Uh, but Justin, as I said, I was so passionate when you sent through the, the suggestions and so love the open and kind of free-flowing discussion. So thank you so much for joining me today. And this really has been such a pleasure. Harry, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Such a fantastic guest, and I so appreciate Justin being so open there about his experiences. And if you'd like to see more from Justin, you can find him on Twitter at Justin Sass. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, ever feel like you really can't connect with your prospects or have an organized workflow to get deals closed? Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform, supports sales reps and their managers by making it simple to humanize and personalize communication at scale, automating the soul-sucking manual work and dramatically increasing the productivity and efficiency of all revenue-generating teams. You can check them out at outreach.io forward slash SASTA to chat with them and receive a free copy of their new book, Sales Engagement, How the World's Fastest-Growing Companies Are Modernizing Sales Through Humanization at Scale. And speaking of connecting with your customers there, the question is, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them today and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And finally, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Eric Nasalroad, Strategic Advisor at Atplos, the software to help you grow your non-profit or church, attract great donors, automate everything, and get instant insights, all while growing your donations and your impact. Hi, Harry. Treat everything as an experiment, whether it's developing new acquisition channels or in-house systems. If the first iteration doesn't work, try again. If it does, treat it as a new standard to improve upon. Sometimes building things can feel like getting married it's really better to think of it as just dating when you're a startup. Thanks so much for that, Eric. And I couldn't agree with you more. Iterating is one of the keys to success. And you can also find out more about success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. And as always, I so appreciate all your support. It really does mean so much to me. And I can't wait to bring you a brilliant episode next week.